Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Cults and Crime, the true crime podcast where we cover cults, crime, and everything in between. I am one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. All right, guys, so we're going to be talking about a cult today. Jamie, what are we talking about? We are talking about the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, those of us who grew up going to Sunday school, are really iconic. A lot of us memorize them by heart. Don't have any gods above God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Sundays for the Lord. Honor your parents. No adultery. No stealing. No bearing false witness. No coveting your neighbor's wife. And finally, don't covet your neighbor's goods. What if I told you that there was a cult that had beliefs that warped those Ten Commandments and used them to enslave and eventually kill almost a thousand members? Welcome to the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. The cult started in the late 1980s in Uganda. This was a really tumultuous time for the region. Civil war was happening in the north and the early days of the Mussolini regime was hounded by instability for the region. Museventi and the National Resistance Movement had just taken over the country in a conflict that would cause over 1 million deaths. I read an article by the New York Times entitled Uganda After the Terror that described villages at this time. Museventi had promised that if anyone on the opposition would stop fighting, he would give them a pardon and they would be sent on convoys back to their homes. This caused widespread overpopulation on many of the border villages. This in turn led to hunger and starvation. The writer of the article talks about walking and seeing a young girl trying to nurse a child that was nothing but a skeleton, and how a government official, when asked how they would classify the situation, said, it was not starvation, just severe hunger. During this time, the age crisis was also reaching a boiling point in Uganda. It reached the point that there was 29% of the population that had the disease. That's almost three out of every 10 people. Musa Venti created programs to help tackle the disease, but the program was based around abstinence and being faithful. In the 1980s, 68% of the population was Christian, making it the largest religion in the area. A large part of that proportion was specifically Roman Catholic. Throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, many church officials condemned the use of condoms in any situation. Even the Pope, John Paul II, said that condoms were a sin, and it violated the authentic human sense of sexuality. The factors of high turmoil and high religious beliefs led to the cult of the movement of the restoration for the Ten Commandments. The group was founded by a group of excommunicated Roman Catholic priests. The priests include Joseph Kibarari, Joseph Kasparari, John Kamagura, and Dominic Karibabu, and of course, a few Roman Catholic nuns. But their beliefs really started with a so-called ex-prostitute named Heronia Mimdori, or so she wanted people to think. Mirandi was an interesting figure. She grew up in a religious house, but soon rebelled against her family's beliefs. She was known to be charismatic, and according to some, promiscuous. In her 20s, she fell in love with a local official, only to burn down his home after he left her. So she burned down his house because why? Just because he left her. She couldn't handle it. 
Ooh, that takes uh, another name for crazy right out the window, right? And her family obviously thought the same thing. Shortly after, they sent her away to seek mental health treatment. That does check out. (laughs) And when she was released, she was talking to a childhood friend and admitted to being mentally disturbed. She wasn't very close with her family after this and opened a bar where she beat her own banana beer. Banana beer? Apparently, it's a really popular beer in the region. I didn't really look too much into how to brew it. I'm just assuming it's a banana-based beer. So... After this happens, a lot of her stories rumors, so I did the best I could to kind of work my way through them, but she's honestly kind of an interesting figure, so hope you guys enjoy a little bit of rumor and a lot of facts. This part of her story is really shrouded in mystery and rumors. What is certain was that her bar was failing and she decided she was going to do everything she could to continue her lifestyle. See, she was obsessed with money and gaining wealth, and you know, her having the bar was a large part of that. That's what she thought was going to give her wealth, but it was failing. She began to see and get married to a new husband, and she also began to spread the rumor that she was a prostitute. Her husband wholeheartedly denied this, but seeing what we do see in the future, we know this was a carefully crafted plan. Just like Mary Madeline from the Bible, she too, a former prostitute, would go back to the love of God and invert her life back to God. So, in order to seem more like Mary Magdalene, she decided that she was going to pretend to be a prostitute? Am I getting that right? Oh, yep. You're getting that 100% right. Like I said, she's an interesting figure. Yeah, I don't know about that planning. It doesn't necessarily check out to me. Well, so her idea was that she was going to be, in her mind, the lowest of the low before God redeems her. You know, Christians love a good redemption story, and that's what she wanted to give them. Yeah, but... So I don't really feel like prostitution is the lowest of the low. I feel like pedophiles probably rank a lot lower than that, but that's just my personal opinion. Well, you know, pedophiles, murderers... But, you know, as a woman, especially during this age in that region, that was one of the lower things you could do. All right. And still get redemption for it. And I guess in her mind, it kind of makes sense. She has this kind of willingness to debase herself and go the extra miles to get what she wants. Uh, What an overachiever. You have no idea because also during this time, as part of her redemption tour, she began seeing visions of the Virgin Mary. This was a way to solidify her rebirth. This got her many miracle seekers to follow her and go to her for advice and spiritual guidance. But rumors about her other activities begin to surface. Through a letter with her friends, one about how she seduced a passing motorist to her bar to kill them in order to get their money. Others about how she was beginning to gain a good following and she got angry because someone was a family member of someone who was following her and refused to join her. She and her followers burned down their banana plantation. From making banana alcohol to burning it down. So I have nothing to prove this theory, but I think that she wanted that follower to probably get a discount, like a supplier discount for the bananas. And when they wouldn't join her, that's why it was particularly egregious. That seems very mob-esque. Yes, but that is a wild speculation and I found nothing to back that up and I looked, so. So the police also suspected her of killing her own brothers by poisoning around this time. 
She had three and she killed them one by one, but chose not to kill her sisters. She needed them to legitimize her claims that Mary was coming to see her. But as a woman, she was having a hard time finding followers. She needed a man in order to legitimize her further. And this is what she found in the other men who would eventually be her fellow cult leaders. Joseph Kipawari, Joseph Kaspari, and John Kamaraga, and also Dominic Karibabo. They would all join her for the movement of the restoration of the Ten Commandments. Credonia would end up moving into the home of Kiburari and his wife. His wife documents his time in their life. According to an article by The Guardian, they didn't know a lot about her past, just that she was a reformed prostitute according to her own words. Kiburari's wife was uncomfortable to say the least with the arrangement. According to her, little was known about Corona's past and that she described herself as a former prostitute. All Teresa knows is that she moved into the house by July that year and did not leave for two years. She was humble at first, but she soon began to mistreat me. She said I was bad and that she and her sister should sleep in the same room as my husband and I. And he always supported them. Oh wow, a man supporting multiple women sleeping in his bed. How original. Yeah, I can't see that being a deal breaker for a lot of men. Or a lot of women, you know, whatever floats your boat. But it definitely, to me, seemed... She seemed like a woman who wasn't afraid to use her sexuality to her benefit. And I feel like this is one of the ways she manipulated these men. Yeah, I can definitely see this as manipulation for men. But he also needed her as well. He was also claiming to be on a mission from God. But used Credonia to prove that he was chosen and that his path was blessed by Credonia. The organization that started its own religion also started a school. They needed the guidance having someone who could see their very own Virgin Mary give them miracles. The group gathered around these two quickly. Joseph Carawari was the leader on paper, but Cordonia was the true leader behind the group. She chose many of the past that would eventually lead them to their fiery end. Cordonia had the male leaders under her thumb. The control she exercised got not only her, but her entire family a large part in the cult that was forming. She stayed mainly in her room unless it was time to lead a church service, or she'd have one of her nephews run messages from her that she was allegedly getting from the Virgin Mary. She also used these powers and control to abuse the family members of the male cult leaders. She would beat the children when they disobeyed and treat them like they were lesser than her and her family members. Joseph's son told the Guardian that he was appalled by what was happening to his father. My father loved us when we were children. But then he started to do whatever those women told him. He stopped loving us. Also, according to the Sun, many of the cult leaders were eating much better than their masses, and a lot of people in the cult were starving. They would punish members that they deemed not worthy enough. According to them, the world was ending, and that if they were sick, they should pray instead of getting medicine. As the cult got more serious, they stopped sending the children to the school the very same school that the cult has started and funded. The cult had some weird beliefs to say the leaves. They believed in the use of sign language instead of speaking to protect from breaking the ninth commandment against bearing fault witness against your neighbor. They had regular mandatory fasts and were only allowed to eat on Fridays and Mondays. They could not have sex and they also could not use soap. Why not soap? Oh, I have no idea, Nicole. The heavy emphasis on the Ten Commandments came from a vision, 
where the head of the organization saw the Virgin Mary speaking with God. He claimed that the Virgin Mary told God that humanity would need to return to the Ten Commandments and the world would end. Apparently, he overheard this conversation between Jesus Christ and Virgin Mary. Wait, Jamie, I... Wait, he? I thought only the woman was getting visions. The man now, too? So, she's the first one to be receiving... Well, she's the first one in this region to receive visions of the Virgin Mary. It's actually something that's really common all over the world. Sometimes sometimes the Vatican actually recognizes these and calls them miracles. Are we talking like Jesus' face and toast kind of stuff? Or, like, what? Well, not Jesus, the Virgin Mary, but... Yeah, kind of. Like, it happens all over the world. There's, I want to say, only a handful that the Vatican has actually recognized as actual miracles. For the most part, it's a lot of people claiming it for, you know, praise. And you can get a lot of money and people will want to come see you. It's kind of like a publicity stunt, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess so. So according to an article by Live Science... The Vatican actually has an appointed miracle commission. They shift through hundreds of thousands of claims every year in order to choose which ones that they believe are actual sightings or miracles. Nearly 99.9% of all those miracles are medical, which is really, really interesting and includes you know, spontaneous healing, faith doctors, that kind of stuff. It could be anything from a woman being cured of breast cancer to a child walking for the first time. So the miracles are only confirmed if the person is healed, prayed on solely by one person. That means it can't be multiple faith healers. It's one person who prayed over a person that was sick or disabled by some way, and that person is healed. So if you are one of these people that are the main focus on one of these miracles, you get sainthood from the Catholic Church, which is, once again, Something that if you are running a church or if you are trying to get fame and fortune in a highly Catholicized area is an invaluable title. So like many groups, they had predictions of the world ending. In 1999, December 31st, the members sold their possessions, killed offerings to their god, and had a week-long feast, which is normal because like I previously stated, they only ate two days a week. But as the day came, the K went with no apocalypse and no destruction. Obviously, that wouldn't stand, and another vision came. It was 2000, December 31st, and that day came and went with no apocalypse as well. So obviously, that wouldn't stand. If the Virgin Mary is the one feeding this information... How did you have two years in a row on December 31st that the world was supposed to end and it didn't? So, a new prediction came. This was for March 17th. This was the day that the Virgin Mary would take them to heaven. Everyone else would be killed, but the cults chosen would survive. While in heaven, they would live perfect lives of Adam and Eve before Eve ate the apple predictions this day was marked with feasts and the slaughtering of three bulls to represent the holy trinity this was the evening before the cult would meet its end the group members arrived at church expecting salvation they prayed and sang that was until the explosion started according to neighbors the building was gutted in intense fire the building had had all the windows boarded up so there was no escape for those inside oh my god 530 people were in attendance that day, men, 
women, and children. That's so many people. But like I said, the cult would kill almost a thousand people. The death toll was just starting. Over the weeks following, law enforcement would find mass graves all over Uganda. Six bodies were found near the latrines of one compound. 153 were found near another. Kwato's estate had 155 bodies left there and 81 in a farm owned by Joseph Nimardis. Some were burned, others were shot, stabbed, but many had been poisoned, most likely without their knowledge. During the beginning of the investigation, the police believed that all the cult leaders had died in the fire. But as the police began to investigate, there was two missing. Joseph Cabareri and Cardonia Miranda. Many, many expected they escaped and are now on the run. Police set out a manhunt, but there is little known about the outcome. They may have died in the fire, or they may have escaped, too cowardly to commit to the deaths that they had sentenced to many others. What do you mean that they just ran away? Like I said, they're cowards. That's the only way to explain what happened. Well, if you are... So this is the cult leader, correct? This is two of the cult leaders, yeah. So both these cult leaders obviously didn't believe in what they were selling to all these poor people that they murdered. Was yeah, the almost thousand people that they murdered. I, I seriously just don't understand why. Like, why not just be like, bye, see you later, we messed up, like, we fucked up, bye. Like, I don't understand. Why do you have to kill them? Well, Credonia had a long history of arson and murder. She's the one who, her boyfriend left her and she burned down his house. She's the one who would kill, who killed passed-by motorists to get their money and burnt down that banana plantation. This is very, like, very in line with, this is very in tune with everything she did in her life. And it's, it's honestly, it's just cowardice. The whole thing is just being cowardly. You're too cowardly to face the people that you lied to. You're too cowardly to, you know, tell them I made a mistake. I lied to you. Or even just to continue just doing your cults and lying to them year after year. You chose the worst possible way out, which was murdering thousands of people. And even before they killed them, they basically tortured these people. Like, they were only allowed to communicate during sign language. So it's just, these people were treated horribly for the years leading up to this as well. And then, like, to me, one of the more, like, the whole situation is awful and horrible. But something that's so egregious is that there was women, children, and men in that thing. Children. Small children. And you boarded up the windows. They boarded up the windows. Even if people wanted to escape, there was no way possible of doing that. They watched their entire families burn for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because somebody was wrong and didn't want to admit it, basically. Yeah, and this is the problem with, you know, cults that are based off of, you know, semi-Christian-like ideologies, is that, you know, you get people from the church at large. They got a lot of people from the Catholic Church. Because people were seeing all the horrible, awful things that were going on around them. You know, they had a huge war. Millions were dying. People, millions were dying from the AIDS crisis. People were dying. And the government was blaming it on infidelity and, you know, not infidelity and having sex before marriage. Well, yeah, that is the problem. And this lady is still out there. Like, she could still be out there, right? 
This cult was active during the 1990s, and you know it's only in the 2000s. She would be pretty old by now. I think she was in her 40s during this time, so she'd be in her 60s or 70s, but she could still be alive. Her and Kibawari. Well, she's probably still out there today doing the same exact stuff. Hopefully she at least decided to fly under the radar after this. Oh yeah, only killing one or two people instead of the mass murder she's used to. Yeah, because the police were looking for her. There was a huge manhunt throughout Uganda, but this was not the most stable time. You know, the government did not have full control of the country, so she could have... It's like there are so many options when a country is in turmoil like that to leave. She could have left as an immigrant to a different country. She could have just changed her name because record keeping wasn't a regular process at that time. So, so many things could have happened to her. She could be living her life in a huge city in a different country by now. Nobody knows. I'm hoping that she burned. I would love to know that she burned and she got just what she deserved. I honestly could not agree more. And that's probably about as much as we can talk about that subject a whole. Well, yeah, without getting into, like, the horrible things we'd like to do to horrible people. So, enough with this horrible monster. Nicole, who are we covering next week? Do you happen to know who Nicholas Barclay is? Of course I know who Nicholas Barclay is. I wouldn't be a true crime lover if I did not know who Nicholas Barclay is. Mm -hmm. Well, that's who I'm discussing next week. And hopefully I'll get you a little bit more new information and keep things fresh. That poor family, that guy really took advantage of them. Well, actually, Jamie, I have a different take on this story. And hopefully I'll be able to change you and everybody else's mind. Well, I'm super excited. I guess we'll see you guys next week when we cover the mysterious case of Nicholas Barclay. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Hennig. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.